If your leasee in a manufacturing facility is seeing decreased profits, the people who own the business are going to see different returns. But the person who owns the building, because the lease stays the same, are going to see more stable returns. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. This is your host, Dr. Michael McManus. So glad to have you back here today. If you're watching this on YouTube, I'm having fun because I have my virtual background. So it looks like I'm recording from the streets of Telluride, Colorado today. I just love that picture today. I grew up in that area. And actually, when I was a kid, when I was in high school, Telluride, the mine there had closed. And there was really like the town was emptying out. Skiing wasn't a big thing yet. Oprah Winfrey hadn't built a house. That was several years later. And there was a time when you could buy real estate in Telluride for next to nothing. It really, there was a joke that said you could buy the cost of a house cost of a one-way bus ticket so the person living in it could get out of town. Within 10 years, it uh, had turned the corner. Last time I was in Telluride a couple of years ago, when we looked through for real estate for sale, and I think the cheapest thing in town was like $1.7 million. And it was basically like a gussied up 400-square-foot uh, shack that might have had some historical significance. But we love stories like these. And most people have stories like these, and this is what they think about when they think about real estate investing, is finding this hidden gem that's going to appreciate and shoot through the roof. And this is what we call speculation. And if I had the crystal ball to speculate on Telluride, Colorado, or most of the mountains of Colorado back in the early 1980s or even late 80s, I probably wouldn't be doing this show because I'd already be retired. Even then, when I started residency, I was an, an intern at uh, Geisinger in Danville, Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania, kind of right in the middle of the state. And it sits right on the edge of the old coal country. And when we moved there, I remember just being blown away because we'd left Colorado and a lot of Colorado, especially around Denver and Telluride had already boomed by this time too. Everything was expensive, and there was stuff in central Pennsylvania that wasn't even owned. It had gone under tax foreclosure years before, and nobody wanted it. Um, and it, there was stuff almost like to be given away. And I joked with my wife, I was like, we could buy 10,000 acres for $10,000. And she thought I was stupid. And it was kind of a stupid idea. She's like, why would you want to do that? I said, well, I could be a land baron. I'd have 10,000 acres of what? And she said, basically, you're wasting $10,000, which she was right. On the speculation side, the thing I didn't know was that a decade or two later, oil shale would come back. And even if somebody told me about oil shale, then I would have said no, because there were oil shale products projects in Western Colorado back in the 70s and 80s, and they all failed. And I would have been like, what? we've already tried oil shale and it failed. Well, then years later, the technology changes and there's fracking. Well, again, if this was right in the heart of what became shale country, and one of the biggest problems they had with developing that shale is it was all small plots of land and they had a hard time putting together big enough packages 
that they could really put drilling rigs on and develop it. And if I had bought a large land package in the old at the time, like almost abandoned, beat down old coal country, again, we wouldn't be listening to the show because I would be retired. But you know, we look back again, that's speculation, not investment. So today, talking about investing in industrial real estate, probably one of the least understood, and in my experience in talking to other docs, and to some very confusing and scary because it's outside of anything that we have used or done in our lives. Like most of us owning residential or multifamily real estate makes sense because pretty much all of us rented an apartment at some time. So they understand how that works, why it works, what's a good apartment, what's a bad apartment. Medical office space makes more sense because we work in a medical office. We understand the demand, what matters for location and things like that. And these are good things to invest in and things we know. But by learning about some of the asset classes we don't know about, there are some great potential and some really great investment opportunities. And that's why today we're talking about industrial. We talked about this a little bit in some shows before. And I got a little office that I record these from in Green Bay, and we're right on the edge of a warehouse district. So this was something I didn't know a whole lot about a few years ago, but I see it every day and this kind of heart of commerce. So really in understanding industrial real estate, we need to define what encompasses industrial real estate including things like warehouse distribution centers and manufacturing facilities. And then we want to contrast this with more familiar asset classes like residential and retail, like we were just talking about. One of the big drivers or big changes in industrial real estate in the last really 10, especially the last 10 years, but even going back further, is the rise of e-commerce. And we're going to talk about how the explosion of online shopping has increased the demand for warehouse space. And we'll talk a little bit about the resilience of industrial real estate and why in many ways it is one of the most stable and resilient, even through economic downturn, and why they are such fabulous leases. And this again comes down to long-term leases that can be from uh, very good tenants that maybe you've never heard of because they're in behind the scenes transportation, logistics, and manufacturing and can be very strong and very stable leases. And then we can go into some of the, we'll talk about more of those investment advantages and future trends and opportunities in this market. And then today I'm going to do something new and we're going to wrap up the show with a little bit of a news bulletin on AI. This is one of my new things that we're really we're integrating a lot of AI tools into my real estate business. We're actually developing a company to take a lot of the things that really that drove me away from being a doctor and giant headaches and applying some great new AI technology that already exists to eliminate some of those headaches. Let me know if you think it's dumb and doesn't fit. But I just think it'd be fun just to add in a little bit of learning each time, pull a little new segment about something new in AI, because it's going to affect all of our lives as far as real estate investors, doctors, and everybody out there. All right. So first off, let's dive in a little deeper into different types of warehouse spaces and really what these are. These spaces are the backbone of numerous industries. They play a role in logistics, manufacturing, 
and distribution. Uh, there are standard warehouses, which are basically a big shell, large unadorned buildings primarily used for storing goods and inventory. They're typically in industrial areas and along major transportation routes, depending where you live. You may never see these places. If you drive by interstate, though, around any big cities, typically as you come in and out of major metropolitan areas, there are now large warehouse centers near the interstate. And there's a lot of these that are very new and are some very quality looking businesses. This brings us to distribution centers, and this is more what you'll see along the interstate. These are positioned for efficient product handling and quick turnaround. Some of these now are last leg distribution centers. These aren't the giant ones you'll see right off the interstate. They're often smaller warehouses that are closer to neighborhoods. And this is part of this whole e-commerce world of different buildings being met to meet new logistical needs. Now, some of the ones that we don't think about are climate-controlled warehouses. And these are ones that typically they're cold because big buildings get hot anyway, but in the summertime, they may be maintaining temperature there and be cooled if you have things that need to be stored in a controlled environment, say wax that could melt versus steel can be in a hot warehouse. But most of the time when you see climate-controlled warehouses, they're talking more about cold storage, which could be both frozen or refrigerated, usually for food products, but these could also be for scientific products. Automated warehouses is a term I've started to see, but it's really new technology that's going into warehouses and is probably part of a lot of warehouses. And a lot of what this includes are things like packing and sorting racks, automated conveyor belts, or even automated machinery that move goods around within the warehouse. This is an interesting thing that investing, and especially for a value-add investor, but often some of the value your tenants add, and this is totally different from the world of uh, multifamily, where often, especially if you rent to college kids or many other people, they destroy your property. A lot of times with a warehouse lease, you can put in the lease that when a tenant moves in, depending on what they want to do, you can either require that improvements they make that are attached to the building stay or that they return the building in the same condition they got it. What that means is if they're going to put cool stuff in like automated racking systems, you can request those stay, which can add value after they leave to allow you to lease at a higher rate to your next tenant. Now, why would they do that? Well, sometimes these things are built custom to this building. And if they're moving to a bigger warehouse or to someplace new, they need something different and they may not want to take it with them. They may not want the cost of tearing it out, even though it can be, they could have spent a very large sum of money putting it in. So this is just always one of those things that can be looked at in leasing that can add value to a building. Um, but on the other hand, if it's a building that an attendant that you think, you know, when they're done with this, I'm more worried about wear and tear they're going to put on it or if they're doing manufacturing in it. I want it to be a clean slate again with perfect concrete and just a big shell. You can request it. It can be in the lease that it's returned in the same condition. And that way, if there's any damage done, they have to tear all their stuff out and upgrade the building back to the way it was when they moved in. Something, again, you don't get in a residential lease. 
One of the hot topics now is flex space. So flex space is basically warehouse space with office. Now, there, what space is considered flex space can vary a lot from very large. I've talked to brokers who have talked about 100,000 square foot warehouses with office space, and they consider that flex space. Most of the time, if somebody's talking about flex space, you're going to be talking about a multi-unit building. Sometimes these almost look like large, glorified self-storage that the individual units can be somewhere between 2,000 and 10,000 square feet. Usually that 7,000 square feet is about kind of the sweet spot for a lot of these. Some people call these spaces contractor garages. And what that means is it's highly versatile. So there's office space, they can run their office out. And there's warehouse space, typically will have larger doors and be higher than maybe your standard low buildings where they can store supplies. Say if they're, uh, why it gets called contractor garages, if somebody has an HVAC business. So they got their office, they're running the business out, but they need a place, especially if you're in the north or even in the south, if it's hot in the summertime, where they can bring their trucks inside to load in a climate controlled space where they can load outside of the rain, depending what they're putting in. They may not want that stuff to get wet, or it may be stuff that can get wet and it's just better to be able to pull those trucks all the way inside. Some of the bigger operations will actually do their own maintenance on vehicles within this space. But more typically, it's a storage warehouse space where they can put stuff together for different products and sort and load. Also, depending on what they do, they may do some light manufacturing where they build things up in their little factory in their controlled space before taking it onto the job site and installing it. So that is typically what's called a flex space. It's somewhere between a big warehouse and mini storage and a combination of warehouse and office space together. And so a little deeper dive into e-commerce. The e-commerce revolution has dramatically reshaped the landscape of industrial real estate from brick and mortar retail to online shopping. And we've seen this because of a change in consumer behavior, but as distribution has gotten better, it has changed consumer behavior. Think about things you used to order on Amazon or wherever were things you didn't mind waiting for, or you're pretty sure you didn't, you wouldn't have to return them. But as those facilities have gotten better, you can get things delivered to you faster so that you're more likely to utilize them. This has also brought up some facilities that are exclusively for returns, sorting and uh, reshipping out returns. Again, increased demand for distribution centers like we talked about because stuff is coming together and being shipped out to more locations. And that brings the last mile delivery facilities. Last mile delivery is really, I'm sure this existed before, but it's really an e-commerce thing. Because before, if you were shopping at a store, there would be a large truck that would bring stuff to a warehouse to the store. Well, the last mile is more now this is being brought to your home. So the large truck brings the stuff to the last mile delivery facility where now it's loaded into the smaller trucks that take it out to your house. And they call it last mile because really these are set up that it is really the last mile or the last few miles. 
They don't want to take that delivery van and drive that delivery van 30 miles. That's not the most efficient way to have a whole fleet of delivery vans all driving long distances. They want to bring the bulk of the material close and then put it into the small vans for the last leg or last mile delivery. And so a lot of these changes have caused big changes in warehouse design. And part of that is why we've seen a lot of new warehouses being built is because old warehouses didn't meet the needs of new warehouses. Now, as an investor, this can create uh, an interesting opportunity. And we'll get into these new designs here in just a second. But there are some old warehouses that can be bought very cheap now. And that's because demand has gone down for those. And so as an investor, you're looking for ones that you know there's still demand for, and you don't get too excited just buying a cheap, big, empty shell, because then you may be just stuck with a cheap, big, empty shell. It's hard to sell and hard to rent. But if you know your area and you know that this warehouse has too low a roofs for a major warehouse because now equipment and racking they can put stuff higher and put more stuff in one space safely that they're moving to bigger warehouses well some of those older warehouses are still big enough for flex space so if it's in a location that would be good and there's high demand for flex space they can be converted into flex space or some sporting facilities sometimes a wrestling gym a, a workout place so that's what happens with some of these older warehouses and understanding the market that it's in and what there's demand for can turn some of these where you get a building really cheap and can turn it into a real cash cow. But if you're just buying it because it's cheap and you don't have a plan for where it's going next, it can turn out to be a bad investment. So if you're ever investing with somebody else and you're investing in an old warehouse space, make sure you really understand what they plan to do with it. And even better is if they already have a tenant in tow. And what that means is they already have somebody who's looking for that space and something to lease, and they're just finding it. And they've got somebody to ready to sign a lease as soon as they find it. That's a great investment. And that's one of the examples of what's great about the non-multifamily space is you can actually de-risk a project by before you even buy it, you can basically have somebody lined up to lease it. You can't, in most places and anywhere that I'm aware of, sign a lease on a place you don't own yet, but you can have that whole process driven right up and basically taken almost all out of the risk out of the project from the start. Um, but back to changes and redesign of traditional warehouses. The big thing we talked about already was higher ceilings to facilitate more storage, more sophisticated sorting and packaging. And a lot of this has come about because of new technology and advanced technologic infrastructure. There have also been shifts in geographical preferences. This is all comes to do with where things are coming from and where they're going to. One of the places that's really thrived in the more world economies area around Charlotte, South Carolina, because that is one of the bigger deep water ports. And a lot of people don't know that. And a lot of stuff that comes into the country from overseas will come into Charlotte. Well, this has really driven the warehouse and distribution business in that area. This has impacted values in many different ways where there are big new warehouses 
especially like a giant Amazon center, because there are so many businesses attached to Amazon, there will be a need for additional warehouses all around there that kind of are smaller warehouse for things coming in and out of Amazon or even supporting Amazon. So that becomes its almost own little infrastructure. At the same time, the effect on real estate values, it can drive down the value of older warehouse building, which becomes obsolete. There's been a lot of interest lately on green warehousing and are you using energy efficient buildings and a lot of talk of this. But is one of those things, I think it's a great thing. If you can build a more energy efficient building that has more natural lighting, is better for employees, that has more green heating and cooling, which there's a lot of different ways you could do that. Could be uh, geothermal cooling of a building, which means that you can pretty much keep it at ground temperature all the time and changes the amount of other fuels that are required to change it. But if you're looking at investment and they're promoting this, make sure you really look into it. I see a lot of times where they take advantage of people's environmental concerns and wanting to be part of something that's sustainable or green when it really isn't all that green. So before you jump, just because it uses those buzzwords, dig a little deeper and find out what their plan is and how, and is this really going to translate into the efficiencies that you're hoping to find uh, if that's part of what you're trying to do with your investment dollars. And so we look at warehouses and industrial, as we discussed before, it can be very resilient, can be uh, not recession-proof, but recession-resistant. And that lies in several different places. So unlike retail and office, during sustained economic downturns, depending on what they're storing there, often there is very good resilience for these spaces because they still need to transport stuff. Manufacturing facilities still need to transport and even if there's a downturn and that business becomes less profitable, they still pay rent. So where if your leasee in a manufacturing facility is seeing decreased profits, the people who own the business are going to see different returns. But the person who owns the building, because the lease stays the same, are going to see more stable returns. Now, once in a while, if it comes to the point that you have a tenant who may be becoming unstable, then sometimes the landlord can step in and offer them concessions to get through the hard times because it's in the landlord's interest too. So that may see a change in your returns, but nothing is risk-free. So, But that just shows a smart operator when they know when to do that. Long-term lease agreements, again, that's typically with these types of buildings. A five-year lease would be considered a short lease, uh, 10-year leases, 20-year leases. And the reason for that is often the people using these are either they put a lot of time and effort into saying, yes, this is the right location. There's no reason for us to move because moving is expensive. If it's a manufacturing facility, moving is very expensive. So they want long-term leases. What that means to the investor is stable returns. And so if you've got a triple A credit client on a triple net lease in a large warehouse with a 20-year lease, basically, you know that investment is going to produce the same returns for the next 20 years. Typically, the only variability is you can have inflation adjustments built into the lease standard 
adjustments built in the lease. Once in a while, if you get really high levels of inflation, you may see things rise in other places faster than yours rise. You might lose a little bit to inflation is is usually the biggest risk of long-term leases. But at the same time, you don't tend to see the downside of some of the shorter-term fluctuations in the market, lower overhead costs because you don't have a big turnover, and because typically it's a very straightforward design and your tenant is responsible for the maintenance. There's not a lot of cost to the owner. These spaces are also very adaptable. Think about all the things you see in warehouses if you're out driving around. Around where I'm at in Green Bay, there's the number, and I think this is nationwide, the number of places you can send your kid to get advanced coaching in whatever sport they play. And usually these are bigger buildings or smaller warehouse type buildings, but it's a big metal shell. You can put lots of stuff in those. You could put a gym in it and some smaller old warehouses. I've seen uh, a lot of CrossFit facilities in there from that fitness side again. The same building could be used for distribution, be refit for manufacturing, could be split up into smaller units and become flex space. There's a lot of different things that can be done with it over time if need be. And now we've also seen a lot of growth of secondary markets where we're not just in big cities here. And a lot of this is this last leg distribution or maybe when you see changes in the economy where manufacturing moves to areas where labor costs are cheaper. So pretty much there is some sort of industrial real estate almost everywhere. Of course, there's going to be more close to transportation, bigger cities, and especially in parts of the world like the Midwest, where there's a lot of manufacturing. And so as an investor, we've talked about a lot of this, but I still want to just run through it again. Advantages. There's recently been very high demand and low supply dynamics at play. This is starting to change um, where there's less new construction and maybe we're seeing this e-commerce market kind of flatten out a little bit that we won't see as much new construction. At the same time, because these are bigger projects, usually built by pretty sophisticated developers, there hasn't been an overbuilding of warehouse yet. And so rents are, have still been rising and it's remained a good place to put money, although it might not be as hot as it once was. What that could also mean is if the hot money shifts somewhere else, there can be a chance to find some good deals. And that's something I'm really excited about over the next few years. The attractive yield potential warehouses kind of come over all over the place. Like this fits with all commercial real estate. The big, fancy, brand new Amazon distribution centers, typically those, there may be some big returns for a developer who builds it. If you're buying them on the secondary market as just an investor, those tend to be lower yields, and the lower yield is because of the stability. And what that means is they may only pay a 5% return. But what that means, you know, for the next 20 years, you're going to get that 5%. And if there's a big change in value of real estate on the backside, the building's going to be worth a lot more. That's not typically what I focus on in my investing. That's really the money going in there is typically bigger private equity where the people putting money in there are people who have a lot of money and they just want to keep it safe and stable and growing with inflation and are looking for big returns. On the other side, 
empty warehouse space can be one of the biggest home runs you'll ever hit because a big empty metal building isn't worth much. But if you can have a tenant in tow, if you know a good use for that building, or if it's just a building that was poorly managed, that the previous owner was old or worn out and they just weren't looking for a new tenant. And then when their tenant moved out, they're like, oh, well, no, I don't want to go find another tenant. I'm just going to sell it. Those buildings can sell at a huge discount. And if you put a tenant in it on a long-term lease with a quality tenant, you can instantly double, triple the value of that building and can be some absolutely amazing yield or amazing returns from a diversification standpoint. I think you can be well diversified if you own nothing but industrial real estate based upon location and type, but most people don't own any. If most of your wealth is in cash, is in the stock market, is in bonds, is in all your traditional things, and then maybe some multifamily real estate, this is a part of the market that's going to trend different than those and may offer some protection if any of those areas are going down where it can stay stable. You read a lot about growth of e-commerce. This is one when I talk about retail. E-commerce, there's a lot of talk like the whole world is going to e-commerce. And I don't know where e-commerce is going to go. There will probably be more growth of e-commerce. But at the same time, there's a lot of people now who like to go shopping, put their hands on the things they're buying. For my kids, shopping is a social thing again, just like when I was in high school in the 80s. They like going to the mall and shopping and being a social experience with their kids. So when I read things that just talk about e-commerce growth as a given for the economy, I take that with a grain of salt. I don't think e-commerce is going away, but I don't know if it's going to continue exponentially. So what are the emerging markets or niche markets to look for? I think one of those we talked about was cold storage. If you're in an area that produces food, and especially food that needs to be refrigerated, there will be a need for cold storage, and there will be a need along that whole distribution. I've met some people, all they do is cold storage, and they know like every detail of where there is a need for cold storage out there. And I don't know a lot of people who are doing cold storage who don't do a lot of it. So that's definitely a niche market and would probably be a really interesting place if you're associated with the right people to get into. But it could also be a good single investment if it comes with a good lease and that de-risks it. Uh, data centers, that's a new one. And this will probably grow in the world of AI. The amount of computing power that's going to be required over the next 20 years is staggering. And some say might be the downfall of AI, that, that really things we think are potential. There's not enough energy. There's not enough compute to make these things happen. But there's a lot of people putting a lot of money into building new compute capability. I think when just recently, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg was bragging about the pile of NVIDIA chips that they had stockpiled for their AI endeavors. So I think data centers, even though this has grown a lot in the last 20, 30 years, will probably be a continued growth area. Where those will be, there's for anybody. I know we've got a few tech listeners who understand where these the AI compute is going to be based. Those will be places that will need data centers. Flex space, again, as long as we have a shortage of residential housing and there's such a need for contractors, flex space is going to be in high demand. 
But remember, Flexspace has a lot of different things in it. Like I said, that can be gyms. It can be just offices who want a lot of storage space. I've actually seen a hair salon in Flexspace. Some Flexspace is really nice and looks like retail on the outside and stuff is, some is just a metal building. But this is in most major markets, especially in a growing market. If you have a shot at acquiring Flexspace at a good price, I would jump on it. If you're out there and you're a listener and you're not an active investor and you know somebody's selling their flex space, they reach out. I know a lot of people who would be all over buying some flex space. It's really a cool part of the market right now. So what's going to happen from here? Future trends in industrial or real estate. A lot of these we already talked about. Technological innovation, automation, robotics, artificial intelligence, automated storage and retrieval systems. This is going to affect all warehouse in the future. Green warehousing, people who can figure out how to build more environmentally friendly warehouses. Not only does that serve a need of humanity, it also helps in many cases really drive down the cost of heating and cooling these buildings. And then when you have more big buildings, you have more need to figure out how to do it more efficiency, increasing demand for last mile logistics. This is the one. I'm going to question. I see a lot of it out there in the media, but people are liking to shop in stores again. We're not going to stop shopping online. So where are we hitting some sort of plateau? I don't know, but it's one I keep in mind. We talked about the niche market ones going on there. So what are some of the things we see in the news right now? Uh, a few articles, one from Yahoo Warehouse, uh, sorry, Yahoo Finance, where they say warehouse automation market is projected to grow, reaching $37.6 billion by 2025. Key technologies include automated mobile robots or AMRs. That's an abbreviation that's new to me. Wearable devices, such as wireless barcode scanners and enhancing operational efficiencies in warehouse from traco.io. Some prediction for normalization of the U.S. warehouse market. So maybe it won't be so red hot. There was a huge surge in demand due to online shopping during and shortly after the pandemic. There's been a lot of building going on, but they're showing signs that this is stabilizing and normalizing although vacancy rates have remained very low and lease rates have continued to rise. So there is still strong demand. And then from ITS4 Logistics, again, the growing focus on sustainable warehouse, including things like solar panels and efficient lighting. These were not part of warehouses in the past. And if you think about a big warehouse, there's a lot of roof space. There's a lot of building to light, letting in some natural light. Some of the places that are getting a lot of attention, as we talked about before, Savannah, Georgia, and Charleston, South Carolina, due to their proximity to big deep water ports and affordable labor markets. Some of the other states where there's been increased demand for warehouse space are Indiana, Texas, Tennessee, Georgia, and South Carolina. So if you're looking to invest in those areas, those are places that there still seemed to be very strong demand um, from Maersk, the big shipping company. Uh, so they're mostly known for ships sailing across the sea. From the 2024 warehousing trends, Maersk anticipates several trends that include 
automation again with AMRs and robotic arms, a shift towards stock merging to a more efficient inventory management and heightened visibility in warehousing operations and a focus on sustainability because the whole world is pushing for that. The question with that becomes, what happens geopolitically across the world? We were becoming kind of a one world, and then we saw during the pandemic that when you get disruptions to supply chain, it causes big problems. So a lot of companies are now onshoring, trying to uh, shore up their supply chain. Where this ends up, I don't know. It will likely create some disruption and opportunities, though. So really, in conclusion, I hope this has really helped enlighten you a little bit to the warehouse market. It's an area of great interest to me. And so basically, what I'm sharing with you today has been my research and to what's going on with warehousing. And then for the final part, oh, and again, I apologize. If you have any questions, any concerns, any interests you want to talk about warehouses or anything involving commercial real estate, please reach out. We should at Fortress Capital be launching, I, I think I've said this on a couple of websites, on a couple of shows, our whole new website, Investor Portal, whole new platform to make everything very efficient should be launching this week. I'm really excited about it because it's just going to allow us to do a better job for anybody we're dealing with. But thefortresscapital.com, you can schedule a call if you just want to chat about life, about commercial real estate, reach out and let's talk. I'd love to have a conversation. As we finish this up, the quick AI news, this is an article that comes from The Neuron, which is a pretty good email newsletter I get. There's been a lot of talk out there about BARD. BARD is Google's AI. Most people heard of ChatGPT, the large language model that's now affiliated with Microsoft. Google's taken a lot of flack for BARD not being very good. There was some big hope recently when they launched Gemini, which most uh, aficionados were a little disappointed in, and there have been a lot of BARD jokes. But according to this article, powered by the new Gemini Pro model, Google's BARD claimed the second spot in the leaderboard tracking AI chatbots. And really what this says is, is BARD is getting better at certain things. BARD is best for finding knowledge, and this is likely because it's connected to Google. So if you're looking for things like, if your question is, what does X mean? Or what's the difference between X and Y? Or can you explain what's going on with X? BARD is probably a good choice at finding those knowledge things. But when it comes to doing work, BARD still may not be the way to go. This would be things like read these notes, make a transcript of this, change this thing. That's really where people have been more disappointed. And from this article and for all the reading I've done on AI and everything we're doing, I have not yet heard of perplexity. So I'm just going to admit that. But this is the author of this article's favorite AI search engine. So I may have to go out and look that up and see what it's all about. So let me know if you like that little AI news at the end. And if everybody hates it, we'll get rid of it. Just trying to add a little extra value here. So again, thank you for joining us on Surgeon Syndicate. It's our pleasure to have you here. If there are things you want to know about specific topics you'd like to have covered, 
reach out. We'll get those on the show. Thank you. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you found value in this episode, no other surgeons are hungry to become job optional. You can help them by sharing this content today. I also want to serve you better, so I want to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you can take a moment and leave an honest review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. Number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help. Schedule a call. We can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.